0: Good evening. Glad you guys all made it out. Beautiful day today. I hope we all enjoyed it, because tomorrow it's not going to be so nice. But today was awesome. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our, our study through the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter eight, 8 tonight. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And, and Stephen will get a Bible to whoever raises their hand. <laughs> um, couple of things before we get into the study this evening. Uh, Greg asked me this, this evening before we got started that his nephew Aiden, um, who lives in California, uh, attempted a, a suicide uh, this, yes, yesterday. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's an epidemic. Kids all over the place of this age are, are um, in the same place. And, and uh, uh, Let's pray. Father, we uh, want to lift up Aiden to you, Lord. and uh, Just pray, Father, that uh, you would open his eyes. That he would see, Lord, that the most important thing is a relationship with you. Lord, that he would not be looking upon himself or, or the loneliness, Lord, but that he would find you in a relationship with you, Lord, that, that brings about peace and, and, and joy. And, and, uh, uh. We'll lift up Dick and Jen's grand, grandson also. Yeah, same thing with them. We want to lift him up too, Lord. Same thing. And and Father, these, these these children, really, they just need to see that there's hope in you. And there's peace that can be found in you. So, Lord, we just pray that, that you would uh, just touch their hearts. Lord, that you'd bring about godly counsel to them. Lord, not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom from your word that could bring uh, life-changing to these, these these kids, Lord. And just pray your, your, your blessing upon their parents, Lord. Give the parents wisdom in dealing with, with uh, these situations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more thing I wanted to lift up in prayer before we get into the Word tonight is uh, my son Matthew, he roomed with, uh, he, when he was in California Camp Pendleton, one of his buddies was on the rack right next to him, he was up in the top bunk, and a couple other buddies, and, and they got selected to go to 29 Palms in, in uh, California. Matthew got selected, as you know, to go to Washington, D.C. Um, had he not, he'd probably been at 29 Palms with these guys as well, but uh, a couple of days ago... His his buddy uh, Private Goldblum, the guy that was up in the bunk next to him, uh, and and three of his buddies two of his other buddies, they were hit by a drunk driver, and uh, and he was killed um, instantly. Goldblum was, and then uh, one another one of his sons was paralyzed, and another one had his femur crushed, and uh, and these were, I mean. They were it was Sunday night and and they were clean they weren't you know drinking or anything, but there's a navy and a couple of the guys from their Navy that were drinking one across the intersection and uh and hit them head on and so uh you know i i, I tell Matthew that God has got his hands of protection upon you. You need to thank the Lord for it, but but we need to pray for their family and and pray for Matt because it's certain for him as well so let's let's pray for that, and we'll pray for the study, and we'll get into God 's word. Again, Lord, we come to you and, and pray uh, again for the uh, Goldblum family, Lord. I, I know they were a devout Jewish family, and, and Lord, I know that he even went to church with Matthew there to Calvary Chapel in Oceanside, and Lord, I pray that, that he had heard the gospel, and I pray that he had made a commitment to you. But we pray for uh, just now comfort to the families of those involved, Lord, in this horrific accident Pray comfort for, for Matthew as well, Lord, and uh, Lord, we just I thank you for protecting my son, but Lord, I also just want to remember the families of those that are just hurting right now and pray your blessing on them. And Father, we ask that you bless now our study as we get into uh, this chapter, Lord, uh, I just pray that we would gain not only information, but application in our lives that might change us, that excite us, Lord, for eternity and our, our time that we're going to be able to spend with you for eternity. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 8. One of the reasons I, I love studying prophecy because it really gives us, uh, God gives us his history in advance. We see really an incredible example of this here in Daniel chapter 8. History in advance with remarkable detail. Now chapter 8 does read like a history lesson. So you might be going, oh man, I thought I was out of high school, you know, out of college. But, but, but just a word of reminder, don't forget, Daniel is not a historian, he's God's prophet. And so, the future to God is like history to us, and God reveals to Daniel some amazing, fulfilled prophecies. Now as we get into chapter 8, we need to be aware of some notable changes that take place in this chapter. The writing goes back to, uh, Hebrew. The writing has been Aramaic since chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7. The reason it was Aramaic is because we've been looking at, at Gentile war, world powers uh, coming into place. Of so the language was that of Gentile or Aramaic. But as we come to chapter 8, we're still talking about the Gentile nations, but we start to talk about their influence and their effect on Israel. So everything changes. So now it shifts back to Hebrew. Another change from chapter 7 to 8 is the time period and location. Look now at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Daniel's just amazed. You know, it just shows how humble he is. A, A vision appeared to me, to me, of all people. I'm a nobody. But a vision appeared to me. Now, uh, the, the third year puts us at, at 551 B.C., where it says the third year of reign of King Belshazzar, 12 years before the fall of Babylon, which we studied back in chapter 5. So we're going back in time here, back to the future, you might say, because if you go back in time, Daniel gets a vision of the future. Now, when we read this, we may say, well, not another dream. I mean, is this one different than the one in chapter 2 and different than the one in chapter 7? No, not really. Now, there's a little more detail here, obviously, but here's the reason for it. God knows in order for us to learn, we need repetition. We, we learn best that way. It would be the same if someone, you know, came in or we'll just study, maybe they came in for Daniel chapter 2 and maybe they popped in for Daniel chapter 5 and then, you know, the next day at work, they... they, they Tell a fellow worker, hey, you know, this Nebuchadnezzar guy, he turned in like this cow and then his hand wrote on the wall and it said like, meeny meeny you or something like that. And some lions got thrown to a fiery furnace and and, and man, the, the mark of the beast, you're going to be beheaded. <laughs> you know, you want to say, hey, you know, the co-worker's going to think you're nuts, first of all, but you want to say, hey, listen, buddy, you need to come on a regular basis. You need to get the, the whole counsel of God. We need to see week after week how this all just fits together why it's so important to study the Bible, the whole cover, the whole Bible from cover to cover. And it's for that reason that I believe that we see the dream in chapter 2, we see it again in chapter 7, and now in chapter 8, and in Revelation 13. God knows that repetition is good for us. It helps us to learn, and it shows us that God is in control, and what He says will happen with great detail. Now look at verse 2. Daniel says, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. So he's in Babylon, but in his vision he's transported to Shushan, uh, 370 miles to the east. and Shushan was the birthplace of the Medo-Persian Empire and its residence where the, you know, the king would go during the winter. And, and, and the Shushan is where the story of Esther takes place. It's also where the uh, beginning of the book of Nehemiah takes place. Daniel actually sees himself in this vision. His perspective was from the king's palace. He sees himself on the outside. God carried Daniel away in this vision to the capital of Persia, the palace in Shusha. Now, why Shusha? Well, because Persia would be the next empire to come to power. Look now at verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one higher was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. There's no need to guess who the ram is. Verse 20 identifies the ram in the two horns as, as uh, the Medes and the Persians. In fact, the Persian king wore a crown of gold uh, made like a ram's head. In fact, in the, in the Persian ruins of per- Persepolis, they found a ram's head engraved in the sculptures, pillars there. The ram was the ancient symbol for the Persian Empire. Two horns represents the division of the kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. The horn that ends up dominating is Persia. History tells us that the reigns of exerces of Persians superseded the Medes. Now again, Daniel's not an historian. He, he's a prophet. And amazing what he records the, the details uh, before the fact not after. And Daniel writes, Babylon is still the reigning, as Daniel writes, Babylon is still the reigning empire. And it's going to be for another 12 years. Now what does he see? Look at verse 4. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but did it according to his will and became great. So this is really the, the Persian Empire. It got stronger and stronger and, and expanded north towards Asia Minor, west towards Babylon, south into Egypt. They conquered and a large, uh, the borders of Babylon became the greatest kingdom to that point that the world has ever seen. Persia was the last great Eastern Empire. Now, verses 5-7. through And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his, his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. (laughs) Last year, about this time, someone was writing that about the rams and the patriots and how the rams were going to lose. But anyway, (laughs) this is a, a, a remarkable, detailed prophecy. What's it all about? Again, we're given the answer. We don't need to speculate. Well, I think it's this or I think it's that. Drop down to verse 20 and 21. He says, the ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So the ram is the Medo-Persian empire. Verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Now that's none other than Alexander the Great. And again, truly an amazing thing is this. The vision was given to Daniel 12 years before the Babylonian empire ever even fell. 180 uh, years before Alexander the Great was even born. And in verse 21 we read, the male goat is the symbol of Greece. The goat was their ancient symbol. See, the Greeks viewed Persians, the Greeks rather viewed the Persians as a ram, the Persians viewed Greece as a goat. The astrological sign for Greece was Capricorn, the one horned goat. The national, uh, emblem of Macedonia was a goat. According to tradition, Karimas, the first Macedonian king, was directed by an oracle to take a goat for a guide and to build a city where he was led. And, and, uh, he did this and followed the heart, uh, the herd of goats to Edessa, which he made his capital changing its name to Aegea, the goat city. That you'll see in many of the, uh, the goat, on uh, many Greek coins and the Aegean Sea, the, the borders of Greece is literally called the goat sea. Also, Alexander's son by his wife Roxana was named Agis, which means "son of a goat." <laughs> That's what it is. So the goat was Greece. Bighorn was the first king, Alexander the Great, and we know from history in 334 BC, Alexander, in his early 20s, left from Pella with 35,000 troops to avenge the Persian invasion of Greece from 150 years before. He led an army of some 35,000 soldiers against an army of 2.5 million Persians, and he wins. Verse 7 was exactly fulfilled as Daniel said it would be fulfilled. Look at verse 7 again. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. The great Persian uh, ram was totally stopped in his tract in just a matter of four years. Just three battles. Alexander the Great breaks the back of the Medo-Persian Empire. First one was May 334 B.C. Second one was November 333 B.C. And the third was October 331 B.C. If you study history of these battles, especially the last one, you find uh, that he took an interesting position in the battle. Look again at verse 5 just for a second. And as I was considering, suddenly a male came from the west. Now the Persians, when they wanted to fight, they'd do their battle, they would come from the east, they would attack from the east, so they would line themselves up uh, in the morning as the sun was coming up. That way, as they're marching from the east, the sun would be in the eyes of those in the west, you know, so they, they couldn't see as well. But Alexander knew this, and he lined, still lined up his army anyway in the west, so the sun would be in their eyes. But here's the catch. The Grecian army was made of, uh, armor was made of bronze. So Alexander the Great had them shine their, their shields up, polish them to the point that they were like mirrors, and they started to, to march. The sun reflected off their shield and, and back into the Persians' eyes. They couldn't see. Nothing they could do. And Alexander and the Grecian forces had an incredible, miraculous victory. Now, after the Persians were defeated, they basically disappeared from the scene as a major power and eventually deteriorated into a second-rate nation with little power, very little prestige in the world. That is, until about the last 40 years or so, when it's kind of changed kind of radically. Today, modern-day Persia is Iran. Their name was changed in 1935. As we all know and read in the news almost on a daily basis, Iran has been a major player in the Middle East. What's going on there? Their, their, their you know, their agreements with Russia and Turkey. But this goes all the way back, you know, to, to 1979 and the Iranian hostage crisis that was going on there. The point is that the rise of Iran, the rise of Persia, if you would, is, is a key stage setting event in the event of the end times. Iran must become a key player in the Middle East for ancient prophecy of Ezekiel 38 to take place. Now this brings us back to verse 8. Look at verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in its place of it four notable ones that came up towards the four winds of heaven. Now remember, verse 5 said that Alexander moved across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And we've looked at this before. This speaks of just the the swiftness of his conquest. He basically conquered the the all-known world in just 12 years. He'd come to a city or a village where there were people at, and they would be so freaked out that he was coming that they would open the gates and surrender and fix the meal for him. Hey, come on, we give up. We're, We're done. So at the age of 32 years old, there was no longer any nations for him, kingdoms for him to conquer. So the story goes that, that as he was arguing with his generals because he wanted to fight someone else, and they're telling him, Alexander, there isn't anyone else for you to fight. See, he so likes war and the fact that there's no one else to fight, it depresses him. He gets drunk and spends the night in the cold and the rain, and he catches pneumonia. And at the age of 32 in a secluded place in Babylon, he dies of pneumonia. So sad. Verse eight here says the large horn was broken. He gains the whole world, everything in this world, you know, that says will make someone happy. Yet he's miserable. You know, he, he wants more and ends up dying alone and drunk. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew sixteen, twenty six, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here's what we need to understand about Alexander. The reason he was so powerful was not because he was Superman or empowered by, by the gods. Plain and simple, he was a vessel in the hands of Almighty God. Remember, history is his story. It's all about Jesus. See, Alexander Hellenized the Mediterranean world. He changed the language from Aramaic to Greek, which incidentally, Bruce will tell you, the Greek language is the most exact language ever created. And when you look at the timing of this, as Jesus would come into the world, his words would be recorded in the most exact language that was ever created. You know, we have one word for the word love in the English language. I love my car. I love my wife. I love Andy's frozen custard. Certainly, I have a different kind of love for my wife than I do about Andy's. There's just something about the custard that is so rich and cream. No, just kidding. But you understand You know, the Greeks have six different words to describe the type of love that they have. Again, the New Testament Greek was the most exact language ever created. And again, this is all about God's timing and God's story. This wasn't about Alexander the Great. This is about our great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. His story. The Septuagint is written in Greek, eventually in the New Testament. So not only did Alexander change the language from Aramaic to to Greek, but he created tens of thousands of paved roads throughout the Middle East. Roads that would also help with the spread of the gospel. All exactly just at the right time, at the right moment in history. Why? To make way to prepare for Jesus to come into this earth. It's his story. One more side note. According to Josephus, a Jewish historian, he tells us that Alexander, after taking the city of Tyre, headed south towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But he had a dream of men in white robes and another man in a purple robe with this gold headpiece on, and the dream troubled him, and he had no idea what it meant. But when he arrived in Jerusalem, the priest of Israel was coming out to meet him dressed in white robes. The high priest was dressed in a purple robe with his gold miter on his head. And the high priest came out to talk with Alexander, and it was the same man that he saw in his dream. And the high priest showed him Daniel chapter 2 about the leopard and Daniel chapter 8 about the goat. And these passages were written 200 years before Alexander was even born. And according to Josephus, Alexander was stunned and bowed before the priest. And that really surprised his generals who asked him why he fell on his knees before that man, to which Alexander said, I did not fall on my knees before that man. I fell on my knees before his God. You see, God is always after the soul of man. God is concerned with, 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 with the heart of every leader. And unfortunately, in Alexander's life, there seems to be an isolated incident that didn't go any further. So verse 8 tells us the horn was broken, Alexander died, and the Grecian Empire was then divided into four sections between his four generals. And we looked at this last time. Ptolemy, Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, and Seleucus. Now, here's how the division of the Grecian Empire ended up. Ptolemy took Egypt, Northern Africa, Palestine. Cassander took Macedonia and Greek. Symmachus took, uh, the rule Asia Minor. And Selefkos, uh, took the Middle East to India. And although eventually, uh, the Seleucid Empire took over Israel and Palestine. Now, there's a leader that comes out of this, uh, Seleucid Empire that Daniel 8 talks about next, or, or, or verse 9 rather. Look at verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards this glorious land. Now the glorious land uh was the name for the land of Israel. Now here is where it can get a little confusing. Don't mistake the little horn here with the little horn in chapter seven. The little horn in chapter eight is the ruler of the uh, is the ruler at the end of the Greek Empire, where the little horn of chapter seven is the at the end of the revived Roman Empire in the last days. There are similarities. Definitely, we'll see this towards the end of the study, but Little Horns are, are, are two different people. Little Horn in chapter 8 grows out of the Seleucid Empire, which took over Syria and lands further east. The, the, the King Daniel refers to here in, in the 8th in the, in the line of Seleucid, the king by the man, by the name of the IV. We've talked about him before. This guy had a sister in Egypt. Her name was Cleopatra. Antichrist gave himself the name Epiphanes, or, or God Manifest, an arrogant title. As I said We talked about him before. We, the Jews gave him a nickname which really was a play on words. Rather than Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, or Madman is what they called him. Look at verse 10. And this little horn, it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the most some of the hosts and some of the stars, to the ground and trampled them. Now the Bible, stars are a symbol for the Jewish people. The national uh, symbol for Israel is the is Star of David. The uh, Seleucid kings fought numerous battles with Egypt, and every time Anarchist marched southward, he would pass through Israel. And every time he would pass through Israel, he would launch some atrocity towards Jerusalem to per- persecute God's stars. Look at verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the Prince of the Host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Antichus was, was Greek, and one of Greece's ambition was to spread the Greek culture religion. You might say that Antichus, you know, tried to grease up the Jews. <laughs> you know the influence there he even issued a decree that all the subjects should worship the Greek god Zeus now of course the jews resisted why well because they'd been taken captive in babylon why for idol worship and they're going hey i'm not going back there ever again you know we're not we're not going to you know uh, worship these false gods see now they were back on the land they refused to bow to Zeus or any other god but yahweh that's why Anicus hated the jews that's why they hated he hated their god So he comes in and he defiles the holy temple with idols. He stopped the daily sacrifices. He also despised the Old Testament scriptures. We read in verse 12 that he cast truth down to the ground. Man, don't we see that happening today as well? There's no longer a thing called absolute truth. Well, truth is what I say it is for me. It was that Francis Schaeffer used to call truth, absolute truth, true truth. Not just truth for you or truth for me, but absolute truth whether you or I believe it or like it. Now I would say one of the most powerful things about our day is that there are millions of very influenced people who don't believe in such a thing as absolute truth. But again, truth, true truth will be true wherever we, whether we or anyone else believes it or not. Now, sadly, in our culture, Romans 1.25 has come into play as the norm. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen? See, except for the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our hearts are always going to tilt towards one way. We suppress the ultimate objective truth outside ourselves and we choose to create our own truth. That is ultimately why people reject the God of the Bible. Because if God is true, if He exists, if He is absolute truth, then we must yield to Him. And define good and bad, right and wrong, beautiful and ugly, true and false, wise and foolish, our very selves according to Him and not according to us. And that's why people, they don't want to do that. Well, you know, I, I don't know if I like that. But you see, God is, is the measure of all things, not man. And anyone or anything that is against God will ultimately be against the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's why the devil tries to suppress the truth, cast down the truth to the ground as we read in verse 12. Paul's words uh, in in 1 Timothy 3.15 are stunning words. He says this, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and the ground of the truth, the church of God, the support and protector of true truth in, in the world is the church. Why? Because we are the household of God and God is the truth and what He says and what, and what, what, what He does, He defines the truth. Then we have to be uh, uh, committed to teaching the truth of God's Word no matter what. Maybe you saw this lately. I don't know if you heard about it or not. There's a church called the Crossing Church up in Columbia, Missouri. It had been in the news lately, through this partnership with uh, RIP Medical Debt, a non-profit organization that helps people pay off outstanding medical debt, church members donated more than $430,000, which was used to pay off more than $43 million of medical debt by negotiating with debt collectors. It was amazing. And at the time, Pastor Keith Simon explained the motivation behind his congregation's generosity. He said this, We do this because we feel like God has been incredibly gracious to us. He's paid our debts. We think those who follow Jesus should be radically generous with their time, their talent, and their treasure. It got national attention. This was great. How awesome. Non-believers even praised the church. Man, that's what a church should be doing. It's awesome. That is until the pastor spoke the truth of God's word a couple Sundays ago, Sunday, October 13th, the title of his message was, Male and Female, Ancient Text, Modern Debate. Using Genesis 1.27 as this text, Pastor Keith Simon preached on God's design for sexuality and transgenderism. The article I read said this, displaying pastoral sensitivity, Simon walked through the Bible's teaching on gender and reflected on how Christians can minister to those who identify as transgender. With love and compassion, the pastor explained how men and women are created in God's image and how the transgender movement does not align with the Bible's teaching on sex and gender. Despite Pastor Simon's efforts to discuss the topic from a loving, biblically informative perspective, local LGBT activists immediately cried foul, launching a petition demanding local businesses cut ties with the church. That was interesting. In one breath, oh, that's right. Church can be like, oh, wait a minute. Truth of God, word is spoken. Oh, we don't like that. We don't like that. I applaud this pastor for not backing down, for standing up for what is true. I applaud this church for doing just what it's called to do. Be the church. Speaking the truth no matter what, without compromise. The church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And we're called by God to continue on in the truth. Speak the truth in love. Walk in truth. And any deviation from that, then we're absolutely heading in the wrong direction. And the devil and his agents will do whatever they can to suppress the truth and cast it to the ground. And and his man of the hour here in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 was Anakis Epiphanes. Daniel tells us this guy, look at verses 11 and 12 again, would exalt himself as high as the prince of the host. He would stop the daily sacrifices and cast down the place of God's sanctuary, the temple. Then verse 13 we read, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices? and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Well, Antiochus, ultimately Antiochus' blasphemy occurred on December 15th, 168 B.C. That's when he issued that decree, that order to desecrate the Jewish temple. As we looked at already, he offered up the pig on the altar, erected the statue of Zeus to the Holy of Holies. This was blasphemous. The angel here we, we refers to it as the transgression of desolation or the abomination of desolation. It's a final straw in God's eyes. This was the, the transgression that would cause desolation. This would bring down God's wrath. Now what's interesting, and we've looked at this on Sundays a couple weeks ago, is that Matthew twenty four fifteen, Jesus uses the same phrase and action taken by the Antichrist. And it talked about the uh, the uh, uh, the the, uh, abomination of desolation. See, Jesus wanted us and them, his disciples, to know that this was a future event. What took place during the here in in, uh, uh, Daniel there is in the past, but there is a future event that would happen. There would be a ruler in the last days that would also erect an image of himself in the temple and required to be worshipped. We know at that point it's going to be the beginning of the end. God will say, "I've had enough." The blasphemy will be the last tumbler that unlocks God's final judgment on planet earth. And we're going to talk a lot more about that when we get to chapter nine and the abomination of desolation. And and we may take chapter nine in in, in two chunks, two two different Wednesdays. But again, we we look at Antichrist Epiphanes and he's just a preview of coming attractions. There's been men in history, uh, same thing Hitler, I believe, was a, a preview of coming attractions. Now, verse 13 ends with the question, how long will the uh, will the temple be trampled underfoot? Verse 14 answers, And he said to me, For 2,300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, if you have a, a Catholic Bible at home, or if you have a Bible that might contain what's called the Apocrypha, it's not the inspired Word of God, it's, it's not a part of the original text, but it's good history, especially 1st and 2nd Maccabees. And it gives us some insight into the history of Israel, from the time of, of Malachi to the end of the, uh, the Old Testament to Matthew beginning the New Testament. And he fills in some of the, some of the blanks what was going on uh, with Israel during that time. Now, when Antichrist Epiphanes offered up this pig on the altar and erected the statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, it infuriated the Jews, particularly a priest by the name of uh, Mattathias. So when, when uh, Antichrist Emissaries came to the old priest, he ordered him to bow down before Zeus but Mattathias grabbed a sword and killed the messenger, and his, his courage then began what's called the Maccabean Revolt. And Mattathias' son, Judas Maccabeus, known as Judas the, Judas the Hammer, that brought the hammer down, led a guerrilla war against the Syrian troops. And that's what we read in verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 days the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And it was 2,300 days after Antiochus Epiphanes had profaned the temple, exactly as Daniel said, 2,300 days later it is when Judas Maccabees led the Maccabean Revolt and the Jews took back Jerusalem and the temple. When was that? December 25th, 165 B.C. And the temple that had been defiled was cleansed. After the purification, uh, the Jews wanted to reinstitute worship in the temple by lighting their golden menorah, the menorah was a symbol uh, to rededicate the temple. It took eight days, but the Jews only had enough oil for one day. And the story goes, God did a miracle. The oil continued to burn even after it should have run out. Today, the Jewish people celebrate this miracle as the Feast of Hanukkah, also called the Festival of Lights, also called the Feast of Dedication. And as a side note, according to John 10.22, Jesus himself celebrated it. Whatever happened to Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, according to history, this guy was on his way to Elam, to Persia, where he heard about the revolt of the Maccabees and the cleansing and the rededication of the temple. That he was so infuriated by it that he raised his hand to this guy and cursed God and said, when I get back to Jerusalem, I'm going to make the largest Jewish cemetery on earth. I'm going to kill more Jews than have ever been killed. And as he was screaming this, he started coughing and choking and he fell to the ground swelled up, and his stomach burst open as he was being eaten alive by worms. And the story goes, he stunk so bad that his old man didn't want to pick him up. It took about a week for him to die. He uh, so hated himself that in Second Maccabees we're told that he apologized, saying, the God of the Jews is the true God, and if you would heal me and raise me up, I will honor him. Of course, he died. God doesn't make deals. Herod the Great slaughtered babies of Jerusalem, fell down, he was eaten by worms. Herod Agrippa, he's first seen standing in the book of Acts, chapter twelve, giving a great speech, and people shouted, He's like God. He accepted the glory, I'm yeah, like God. Fell down, eaten by worms. Lesson, it's a dangerous thing to persecute God's people and blaspheme God. Worms crawl in, worms crawl out. It's not good. Well now we get to verse fifteen. Look at verses fifteen through nineteen. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen this vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Eli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright, and he said, Look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the lot of time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. Now this is really the first mention that we have, uh, really, of God's holy angel by name. By name. Gabriel is his name, verse 16 says. It means God is my strength or mighty one. Though he's not specifically called an archangel, he is a high-ranking angel. He stands in the presence of God, and to him are given messages from God uh, to the highest importance in relation to the kingdom of God. Gabriel is named four times in Scripture, and always uh, as a messenger from God. The first time, right here in Daniel nine, about what his vision meant. The second time, we'll see in chapter. Second time, we'll see in chapter nine. We know the third time would be when the angel Gabriel announced the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah, and. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, and Zechariah didn't believe it and he couldn't talk until he was born. And in the fourth time, we see Angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, announcing her pregnancy with the Son of God. Only two other angels are mentioned by name. Michael, the archangel, and Lucifer, the chair of the different order of heavenly beings, who later rebelled against God and became a fallen angel. Well, there are only four times when Gabriel's name is mentioned. His ministry, again, seems to be one of, of mercy and, and promise. And he gives Daniel the understanding and interpretation of his vision. Look at 20, verse 20, 22 again. The ram which you saw, having two horns, they are kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king, and as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Again, we looked at that already. Now in verse 23, And in the context of Daniel's early vision, you'd expect the next verses to speak of Anarchus, and they do, in a sense. But I think there's reason to believe another king is also in view, the king of which Anarchus is a type of, the Antichrist. And here's a basis for this. First, the tone of the text changes. The subject of these verses is far more sinister than Anarchus. And second, Gabriel states several times, what he's about to tell Daniel is, for the time of the end, the days of Anarchus ended nothing. And third, the point of the vision in chapter seven eight are the closing of Gentile world dominion. So I I would it would seem fitting that the time of the end would refer to the days of the revived Roman when Messiah would return and establish God's kingdom. And I believe that these last few verses do switch back to Mr. Big Mouth himself, the Antichrist. Look at verse 23. Gabriel says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, the king shall arise, having fierce features. Who understands sinister schemes? His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Revelation 13 tells us that the Antichrist's henchman, the false prophet, will be given power to work miracles. Even call down fire from heaven this Antichrist will be empowered by Satan himself. He will also prosper and thrive, we read, for a season, and whatever he does will succeed. Yet, in the end, he'll pick on the holy people, the Jews. Verse 25, Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. So he'll be sneaky, he'll be lacking any moral code, he'll have no problem lying to gain advantage. To him, the end is the means, he'll be shrewd, he'll be manipulating. Verse 25 goes on, And he shall exalt himself in his heart. Just what Satan did as well, he claim to be God, demand to be worshipped as God. Verse 25, he shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. Revelation 19 tells us that he will gather the world's armies to the valley of Megiddo to fight against the Christ, but he'll be defeated. He'll be defeated supernaturally by one shimmer of the Lord's glory. Listen to Second Thessalonians 2: verse 8. He puts the, the Antichrist's destruction like this, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. That's it. Party's over. You are no more. Finally, verses 26 and 27, And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, still up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. (laughs) I mean, how could they? He's seen the end of time. Daniel is being honest here. The vision drained him physically. He's 80 years old and this whole thing has just made him sick physically. Listen, as we step back from Daniel 8, as we close, three important lessons become obvious. Number one, the sure fulfillment of prophecy. This chapter records a remarkable, detailed outline of ancient history that was Meticulously fulfilled. It demonstrates once again that the Word of God is absolutely true. Man, reading this chapter alone ought to increase our confidence in a God who knows the future because He's ordained the future. Number two, the ultimate possibilities of the depraved heart. Uh, the world likes to believe that every day things are getting better, better, and better. While well, it's, it's true that the last century has had enormous technological advances, it's also true the last century the more people died in wars in the 20th century than any other time in, in the history of mankind. And we live with all these technological advances and gadgets that Daniel couldn't even dream about but we haven't really made that, that moral progress at all. Human heart is still desperately wicked and it, it's in need of God's grace. We've, we've made it an art on how to kill people. The future of the Antichrist shows how evil man can be when, when uh, they're completely cut off from the grace of God. And finally, we can learn from chapter 8, number 3, the sovereignty of God even over evil rulers. Man, and Daniel's, the book of Daniel makes that point over and over again. You know, when Nebuchadnezzar got too big for his britches, God made him eat grass like a cow for seven years. When Belshazzar, you know, he, he drank from the sacred vessels, he was struck down by God that same night. And across history, we see when God says, enough is enough, that's enough, this far no further. He said the Antichrist Epiphanes the day is coming We will say say it once again when the Antichrist comes on the scene. Enough is enough. Listen, that should encourage us. Though evil men rise to power they still must serve God's purposes. And no matter how hard they rise and how evil they are they will be brought low by God. Until then, our responsibility our privilege is to stick to the truth to know the truth and to share the truth. Let's pray.